So we're finishing up our Miracle of Mercy series, uh, and we're getting into the summer months here. I uh, want to point out, if you uh, haven't looked at the back of your bulletin, we have all of our summer camp information on there. We've got camps for all ages from K through 12 coming up. That's a big time of year for us. So as many of us get into the swing of vacations and travel uh, and all that, we're also getting into the swing of summer camp which is a transformative time for uh, the people that participate. So if you have uh, children or brothers or sisters, cousins, grandkids, whatever, if they fall within that age range, invite them. Uh, make sure they know about it. We would love to have them participate and see God work. Uh, so take, make note of that. And as I mentioned, we're finishing up our Miracle of Mercy series. We started this series at Easter this year because we want you to know what God is like. God is a merciful God. God is a graceful God. And I think if more people just understood the true picture of who God is and what he's like, uh, more people would be attracted to him. More people would run to him, understanding that he is the God of grace and mercy. He is the God of love. And he's the God that, that is uh, approachable. Uh, and so this has been a really, really good uh, series for us. Now you have some notes in your bulletin. If you want to pull those out, it's going to have most of the scriptures we're going to look at on there. And the first one that I want to look at as we wrap up our series today comes out of Hebrews 9.27 and it says this, uh, everyone must die once. How many times do we die? One time. Okay, this eliminates Buddhism. This eliminates a lot of new age uh, teaching. You do not have more than one life. You do not come back in another life. You do not get another shot. You get this life with no do-overs. Okay, you die one time. There's one life. After that, you'll be judged by God, is what it says here. Everyone must die once, and after that, be judged by God. Now, what the Bible teaches and what Christianity teaches and historical Christian doctrine is when you die, you stand before the Lord and he judges your life. And if you live this life living for Christ, you get to be with him for eternity. If you didn't live this life for Christ, you don't. You go to hell. So it's heaven or hell. Really, it's up to us whether we go. God just honors the choice that we make in this life. God chooses heaven for us, but he gives us the sovereign will to choose whether we're going to choose it or not. So he honors our choice. The thing is, we're all going to be judged when we die, and it's important that we understand what God is like and who he is, and that we be the kind of people that he's calling us to be, because the good news is when we repent, uh, when we repent in this life, we get, we get to be with him. We get to have fellowship with him. He calls us to be people of mercy because he's a God of mercy. And this is the theme we've been repeating over and over. Again, guys, mercy is undeserved grace, undeserved favor, undeserved forgiveness. We should be like that toward the world because God is like that. The first blank on your notes is this. The mercy God demands his followers extend in this life mirrors the mercy God himself extends in the next God says, you be merciful in this life, just like I am, and my mercy is going to be with you for an eternity. Uh, I want to start this morning, before we get into the lesson, I want, to, I want us to take communion together. Because it's important, if we're going to study mercy, if we're going to talk about mercy, that we understand the mercy that's extended to us. Guys, the Bible teaches uh, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That means that you and I are under condemnation uh, because of sin. We're cut off from the Lord. We don't have fellowship with God. The only way to get that fellowship restored is to have our sin taken care of. Jesus on the cross gives us that opportunity. He, he says, if you will follow me, if you'll become my disciple, if you will repent of your sin, you don't have to be perfect, but you need to start moving my direction. I'm going to apply the death that I experienced on the cross to your life. I'm going to take that punishment that you deserve onto myself. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to take your sin and your darkness. I'm going to give you my light and my life. And it's this great exchange that Jesus offers us to us if we live repentant lives. So when we take communion this morning, guys, we're going to take some bread that represents the body that was broken on the cross. We're going to take some juice that represents the blood that was spilled on the cross. The reason we take that weekly is because Jesus told us to. And he wants us to reflect on our lives every week when we take this. Am I living repentantly? 
Am I honoring the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross by my life, by how I'm living, or am I not? And if I'm not, what do I need to change? What do I need to ask for help for? What do I need to, uh, what do I need to, to, to repent of? Uh, that's what this time is meant for us to be every week. We need to be reminded, this is how much God loves me. He laid himself out on the cross for me. What am I going to do in response to that? That's my choice, right? Guys, I want to urge you to make a good choice today. And if you need help with something, if you feel convicted about something that's in your life that needs to go, get help with that. And we're going to offer ways for you to do that, okay? Let me pray for us and we're going to take communion together. God, as we uh, enter into this time of worship, uh, as we think about your sacrifice on the cross, uh, God, I pray that your, your love for us be central to our lives. Uh, God, I know if we can just embrace your love for us, it's going to transform us. Uh, if we had an inkling of your love for us, God, it's going to change our lives because we're going to start moving in your direction. God, when we see you for who you really are, you are so beautiful and good. It is easy when we see you clearly to turn away from the stuff in our life that's taken us away from you. And, and to turn to you and to run toward you. God, I just pray as we look in your word this morning, as we think about uh, your character, as we think about your blessings you have in store for us and the grace and mercy you extend to us, God, I pray that we will get a clear view of that so that we can be blessed. And it's in your name we pray, amen. One of the things I think Jesus wanted us to think about when we take communion is, is eternity. And he wanted us to think about it often. If you read the pages of the New Testament, there's often this, this talk about eternity, and, and there's these reminders all throughout the epistles, all throughout the gospels, uh, just all throughout the Bible, that this life is, is not the end. And it is wise to live with an eye toward eternity. That's going to determine uh, a lot about your life. It's going to determine a lot about how you relate to God and how you relate to other people, whether you think about eternal, eternity or not. Um, when we get our eye off the ball we get ourselves into trouble, right? And today we're going to look at a, a letter, the letter of Jude, uh, that is written to a church that had uh, groups of people within it that had gotten their eye off the ball. And they, we were getting into trouble. Now, Jude was the younger brother of Jesus. You may not know that. Uh, Jude and James, younger brothers of Jesus, both martyred for their faith. So if you just want some evidence that Jesus was who he said he was, when your brother comes along and says, hey, I rose from the dead, uh, it, you're going to know if he's not telling the truth, right? But if you saw your brother die and come back from the dead, he said, hey, I'm the son of God, I came back from the dead. Okay, Jude and James, guys, they went to their deaths. They were martyred, both of them, saying that their brother was the son of God. Now, that's, uh, that's pretty compelling right there. And they're not the only ones. There were a lot of others, too. But that's who Jude is. Now, before he ultimately was martyred, he wrote this letter. And instead of people here being uh, merciful and ambassadors of God mercy, God's mercy to the world, there were many people in this church that he's writing to that were not. There were many people in this church that had allowed uh, selfish attitudes, uh, to, to kind of invade their hearts where they were after other things, lesser things than God, and it was messing up their walk with the Lord, and it was also causing problems within this church that Jude is going to address. And I'll just start reading in, in verse 1 of Jude. Um, this is the letter from Jude, a slave or servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all times to his holy people. I say this, now here, here's the deal. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Okay, now here's the problem in the letter of Jude. There were people within the church who were saying, you know, God is merciful. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. God is a forgiving God. I don't really need to change anything. He'll just forgive me. 
And they were using grace as a license to sin. Now, this was part of a larger heresy uh, that was present in the first century known as Gnosticism uh, or a wing of it, antinomianism, uh, where they were saying, hey, grace is good, mercy is good, forgiveness is good. I'm going to go sin even more because I want to get more of those blessings. I want to get more of that grace. Paul alludes to this in Romans 6. Should I use God's grace uh, as a license to sin? By no means, right? He uses the strongest no there. This was a problem. This was a problem all throughout the first century. Some were saying, because God is a God of mercy, I'm just going to keep on sinning. And Jude says, no, that's not right. Okay? We cannot say that Jesus is Lord and really mean it if we're just going to live however we want. Now, when we say Jesus is Lord, guys, we're saying Jesus is king. Jesus is in charge. Okay? If Jesus doesn't like it, I'm not going to do it. If Jesus says to do it, I'm going to do it. That's what it means to be a disciple, right? But if I'm saying Jesus is king, but then I'm just going to do whatever and I'm not even going to pay attention to what the king says, is Jesus my king? No, you're just paying lip service to it, right? It's not real. Now, in the United States, you may not know this, um, did you guys know that the vast majority of people in our country claim to be Christians? There's actually statistics on this. George Barna, a research firm, uh, of the elder generation, 83% in the United States identify as Christians. Uh, Of the boomers, 80% identify as Christians. Gen Xers, that's my generation, 73% identify as Christians. Millennials, 64% identify as Christians in the United States. Did you guys know that? In terms of on the census, the vast majority of our country says they're Christians. Now, Barna asked those same people, do you strongly agree that faith is very important to your lives and attend church at least once a month? Now, same, statistics, uh, same, same control groups, right? Uh, well, the numbers drop dramatically. The elder generation, 37%. Okay, this is, is your faith really important? Do you attend church? 37% goes from 83% down to 37%. The boomers goes from 80% down to 30%. Uh, the Gen Xers goes from 73% down to 26%. The millennials goes from 64% down to 22%. You see the difference, right? Now, a different study, how many people in the U.S. actually practice their faith, only about one out of four in the U.S. that say they're Christians are actually practicing their faith. And by practicing their faith, I mean Uh, They strongly agree that faith is very important to their lives, and they've attended church at least once a month. Now, if you add another metric in there, like you read your Bible every once in a while, that number goes down, okay? But we're going to be generous here and say about one in four uh, actually practices their faith. That's down from 45% 20 20, uh, years ago, by the way. This number's going way down. Um, So you've got all of these people in our country that say they're Christians— But then you have a a very small number, statistically, that actually does anything with it. Did you guys know that? Is this news to you? Okay. Uh, If you've been around the church for a while, you may have heard this, but there's this huge gap between proclaimed faith and actually practicing faith in the United States. Now, the context of Jude, looking at this ancient letter, now this is 2,000 years old, The context of Jude is that there are problems inside the church. There are people inside the church claiming that Jesus is Lord, claiming to be Christians. They mark it on the census, right? But inside the church, there's a a lot of people that aren't really practicing their faith, and it's causing problems. What Jude is doing is he's helping people learn how to deal with this kind of stuff inside the church, how to be merciful toward people inside the church who are living outside of God's will. And so today's question that we're going to ask is, how can I be a successful mercy provider inside the church like God wants me to? Most of our messages in this series have been looking out. Uh, I think all of them, we've mostly been looking out. Today, we're going to kind of look in. Because the Bible informs how we deal mercifully with one another. And there's three people that God calls me to be merciful to in this letter inside the church. So number one, inside the church, I must be merciful to number one, those who doubt. Uh, To those who doubt. Jude 1.22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. Now, doubt is not demonized in the Bible. 
It's not. Uh, and there are many doubters who really want to believe in God, but there's just some intellectual barriers or there's something in the way uh, that keeps them from really making that jump. Guys, I've been there. If you know my story, I've been there when I was younger. Um, now, if you struggle with doubt, if you're here today and you struggle with doubt, that's okay. I want you to know you're in a safe place. Nobody's going to look down on you. Uh, I do want to encourage you, if you're struggling with doubt, to talk with your spiritual leaders about that. Talk with somebody about it. Don't be embarrassed about it. Express it. Ask questions. Guys, it's okay to ask questions. Ask hard questions. If, if something's really true, it can stand up to the hardest questions. It's okay. Uh, the big question, though, that I think God would have for you, if you're struggling with doubt, is do you believe enough to obey me? I really think that's what God would say to you. Do you believe enough to obey me despite your doubts? That's the litmus test. Faithfulness is the litmus test, right? If you don't struggle with doubt, if you don't struggle with doubt, you got to be patient with those who do. You just have to be. Uh, God calls us to be patient with strugglers. And, and you may ask, why would I be patient with them about that? Well, guys, what is God patient with you? Is he? Right? That's why we're patient with others. Because we're passing on what God gives us, right? I need his grace. You need his grace. Let's give his grace to others, particularly those inside the church that are struggling with doubt. Don't demonize it. Don't demean them. Be a friend and help them. Secondly, inside the church, I must be merciful to those who are in danger. To those who are in danger. It says in uh, 23, save others by snatching them from the fire. Now, this is talking about inside the church, snatching them from the fire. It's this imagery uh, that's in reference to the fact that these people are on their way to hell. Guys, this is important to point out. This is inside the church. Did you know that the Bible teaches that inside the church, there are going to be people on their way to hell? I'm sorry if that's news to you, but that's the truth. Inside the church, there's going to be people who are pretending to follow Jesus, but in reality, they are not. Do you want to know how many churches have existed in history that have been free from this? I would hazard to guess zero, because it is taught throughout the Scripture. Guys, if you go look at what Jesus says, uh, I believe in Matthew 13, the, the parable of the weeds, I may have my reference wrong there, but he talks about how there's this landowner. He tells a parable. There's a landowner who plants a wheat field. Then darkness falls, and an enemy comes along and sows uh, weeds inside the wheat field. The weeds sprout up among the weeds. The, the servants come to the landowner, and they say, uh, Sir, would you like us to go? And an enemy came and spread weeds all throughout your field. Would you like us to go and pull those weeds up? And what the landowner says is no, because as you're uprooting those weeds, you're going to uproot wheat too. And guys, we as church leaders sometimes can see behavior and patterns and say, I don't know if that person's committed or not, but we're not just going to kick them out of the church because they're because the hat. Why? Because that's not merciful, and that would cause other people to get upset and disconnect too. Now, there are, there are cases, and we're going to look at one here in a minute, there are cases where people do get kicked out of the church. But it's not just because they're struggling, it's because they are blatantly sinning in a very public way. We're, we're not going to condone that, right? But we can't just kick people out inside the church who are struggling. What we can do is show them mercy. What we can do is show them grace. Guys, think about, you know Jesus knew ahead of time Judas was going to betray him? Did he kick him out? No, now it was obvious, if you go read the Gospels, they all knew Judas was struggling. Like, John even writes later, Judas was stealing from the money bag the whole time. That indicates to me they probably knew about it, right? He was stealing from the money bag, the money that they were gathering for all their food. He was kind of pocketing some. Well, they didn't just kick him out, though, because he was struggling. Jesus stayed close to Judas, and Judas didn't stay close to Jesus, and his heart, he never was close to Jesus, I don't think. But that's part of what we see here in Jude as well, is there are people that are part of the fellowship, they're part of the church, they're part of the family, but their hearts aren't engaged, but they're pretending like they are, right? They're pretending like they are. Now, in the end, if this doesn't change, what's going to happen to these people? 
It says we can snatch them from the fire. But guys, if you don't get your heart right with the Lord, you're going to the fire. And I'm not trying to be like a brimstone guy up here. I'm just telling you, I want to be clear. Hell is a real place. And if you don't get right with Jesus, you're going to go there. There's only two kinds of people in the world, people that are on Team Jesus and everybody else. That's it. You're either with them or you're not. And what we want to help you do is be with them, but we also get some of you are just going to fake it. You need to make sure that you are not faking it, that you're being real, that you're not just trying to look good. Guys, you can, you can try to look good at the expense of actually becoming good. And you don't need to do that. You need to be real, and you need to be serious. Snatch them from the fire. Now, I'll just tell you guys, this is personally a struggle for me. I do not struggle with being patient with new believers. I don't struggle with that. I don't struggle with being patient with non-believers. You know who I struggle with being patient with? People who have been around for 10 or 15 years, who've had person after person pour into them, who are continuing to be rebellious and doing the same stuff they've been doing for years and not repenting of their sins. That's who I struggle with being patient with. That's who I want to give a piece of my mind to. When I see a dad abusing their kids, or when I see uh, somebody just being unfaithful, or when I see something where it's people that should have known better, those are the, ones, those are the guys I just want to punch in the mouth sometimes. But I won't, but I want to, right? Like, those are the ones that are really hard to be, be patient with. But what does Jude tell us to do? We are to be vessels of mercy to those people. What's going to happen? Guys, if you, if you act on that impulse to be impatient or to be unkind to that, to that brother or sister that is faking it, what's going to happen to that brother or sister? Or let me ask it another way. What's going to happen to your influence with that brother or sister? Are you going to be able to influence them? What's going to happen to them? Okay, maybe they had some hope at one time because you're close to Jesus and you could help them get close to Jesus, but if you sever that relationship, that influence is gone. And so you've got to be kind with those people. Guys, in 2 Thessalonians 1, it says Jesus is going to come with his mighty angels and flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. Guys, that is what is waiting. Jesus is going to come, come back. Like he came as a little baby in humility when he came 2,000 years ago. When he comes back, he's not coming back in humility. He's coming back in glory. And he came as a weak little baby 2,000 years ago. When he comes back, he's not coming back as a weak little baby. He's coming back as a knight riding on a horse with fire coming out of his face. And you're going to get down on your knees and you're going to worship him whether you worshiped him in this life or not. Because you're not going to be debating who's in charge when he comes back. You're going to know it. And it's going to be terrible for those that are outside of a relationship with him. It's going to be terrible and terrifying for those that are outside of a relationship with him. We don't want to be those people, and you guys, we do not want to on that day look around and say we didn't try everything we could to save people from that terror that's coming to them. And guys, that day is going to be terrible for those outside of a relationship with Christ. We need to embrace that truth because that's, what presented, that's what's presented in the scriptures. I know it's not popular to teach that. But guys, we need to be clear and we need to teach what the scriptures teach, whether it's popular or not. And this is one of those things. Hell is one of those things, one of those doctrines that people uh, sometimes don't even want to come to church because they don't want to hear it. Like, it's, it's in the scriptures, guys. We need to teach it. Uh, number three, inside the church... I must be merciful to those who are dangerous. So I must be merciful to those who doubt. I must be merciful to those who are in danger. Thirdly, I must be merciful to those who are dangerous. Now, it says uh, in 23b, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now, this this is a reference to people who had been rebuked But we're not listening in the church. These are those Gnostics and those people teaching the false doctrines. They had been corrected, and they're just going right on teaching the false doctrines. Now, when we feel rejected, it's difficult to want to be forgiving. Isn't it? It's human nature when you're made to feel rejected to want to answer that back with, with anger or hatred or whatever. 
because you're protecting yourself from more hurt, but Jesus' instruction through Jude is to continue to be graceful even to those who are living in all-out rebellion. This does not mean that you condone their sin. It doesn't mean uh, that you condone any of that stuff. It does mean that you're loving and graceful, understanding that these people spiritually have embraced rot, spiritual rot. That's what it means by corrupted flesh. It means rotten flesh. And, and the message throughout Scripture is you hate the, hate the sin, love the sinner. And this is another example of that. You hate the sin. You, you don't even want to touch the clothing stained by sinful flesh, right? But you love the sinner. Guys, how does God relate to prodigals? You Think about the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, right? He rebels against his father, runs off, does the wild living thing until there's a famine, and he decides he's going to come back. What is the father's posture to that prodigal when he comes back? Man, he's waiting on the porch for that kid to come back. He's got his arms thrown open. He, undignified, lifts up his, his robe and runs to see him on the street, right? He didn't do that as a wealthy landowner, a uh, Jewish man. He didn't do that. That was undignified. He, he does that, though, because he's so excited to see that kid. Now, what if, what if the father had cut that relationship off with that prodigal? What if he had said, if you leave, you can never come back? What if when the kid came back, he treated him poorly and didn't show him grace and mercy? What, what would have happened to that? Guys, we need to understand God's posture toward the prodigals. Whenever they've been rebuked and not listened, when they've left the church, when they've run away from God, when they've leaned into false doctrine, when they've embraced some lifestyle that doesn't honor God, that does not align with what Jesus said, when they come back, our posture has got to be one of mercy and grace. And even, even in between, guys, we've got to have a posture of mercy and grace that doesn't condone sin. It helps people change. So, if I want to be this merciful person who honors God in this life, how can I do that? What are some strategies I can employ to ensure that I'm walking in mercy? Now, I want to remind you guys, Jude is writing to a jacked-up church. He's writing to a jacked-up group of people. And the strategies that he tells them to employ are the same strategies you and I can employ in our context. First of all, to be an effective mercy provider, I must, number one, remember the word of God. I must remember the word of God. It says in verse 17, you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. Now, you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. Okay, when they predicted, they were using their words. The apostles were passing on the teaching of Jesus Christ. The, the New Testament was written by the apostles for the most part. They, when they spoke, they were speaking on behalf of God as his prophets. Whenever they wrote scripture, they were writing as prophets uh, on behalf of God. We believe the Bible is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That means that God works with them to write the Bible. It's written through them in their unique style, but it's God's word that they're passing on. That's what we believe as disciples and Christians. And what these guys taught was that in the last times, in verse 18, there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. You might underline that. Underline scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. This is inside the church. This is inside the church. This, the context here is inside the church, in the last times, which if you want to know a good working definition of the last times, it's today. Okay, it's any time after Jesus ascended into heaven. We are in the last days. The Bible presents a three-act play. Starts with creation. When the fall happens, we move into act two, which is God making things right in the world. That culminates in Jesus coming into the world, his death, burial, resurrection, glorification. Now Jesus is in heaven. The final part of act two 
is Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make everything right. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. Those who are with Jesus get to come with him into eternity. Those who don't depart, they go to hell. Uh, and, and act three is eternity. It's heaven or hell. You get to determine where you go depending on the choices you make and, the, and the, the person you choose to be in this life, whether you repent or not, whether you're with Jesus or not, right? What this says is that in the last times, in the latter part of Act 2, toward the end of Act 2, there's going to be scoffers in the church whose real purpose is just to satisfy their own ungodly desires. Now, how many people see Jesus as a means to an end? Have you guys heard of the prosperity gospel? Okay, come to church and worship Jesus because he's going to make you rich, right? You've heard that. Uh, uh, if, there's, if there's a motive where something is a treasure, and I'm just using that as an example. There's all kinds of ways we could go with this. But if there's a motive or if there's a treasure that is something other than Jesus, that you see Jesus as a means to an end to, that treasure is your God. You know, for instance, if I go to church and I start becoming a good man, God's going to give me a wife or God's going to give me a husband. That's not a bad goal to have unless that is your end goal. What I mean is, is that really what's most important to you in life? Whatever is most important to you in life is your God. Is Jesus, if you just had Jesus, would you be content with just Jesus? Would you be content with just God? Is he really your treasure? You know, in Jeremiah 29, where it says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know, it goes on to say, when you seek God with your whole heart, that word seek in the Hebrew could also be translated desire. When you desire God with your whole heart, then I'm going to give you these blessings. What is your treasure? What is your real desire? The problem in Jude and the problem today, whenever we have people in the church that are, are not healthy spiritually, the problem is a desire problem. The problem is you see uh, the church as a means to your real goal, which is something other than, than a re tight relationship with Jesus and, and a tight relationship with God. When you start to adopt the idea and the truth that God is, and the connection to him is really my treasure. That is a heart that's right. But when God is a means to something lesser that is really in your heart your treasure, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. God is not just a means to an end. God is the end. And if you start treating him like that, if your heart's not there, guys, this is, this is something that needs to change. You are just going to harm yourself and you're going to harm others. The, the problem in Jude is there were people in the church that saw a relationship with Jesus as a way to get something else that had nothing to do with Jesus. It had something to do with what says here is their own ungodly desires. Okay? Don't fall into the trap of seeing Jesus as a means to it. And he goes on now in 19. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. Okay, what, what can you expect from people whose hearts aren't right inside the church? You can expect them to create divisions. You can expect them to create little factions. You can expect them to slander and spread rumors and cause people to fall away. That's what you can expect. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. Spirit is capitalized. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Guess what you are if you don't have God's spirit? You're a non-Christian. What Jude is saying here is there are people in your church that aren't Christians. Guys, again, I don't want to be unclear. This is every church. This isn't just the church Jude is writing to. Every church that has ever existed has people within it that are not Christians, but they're pretending to be. But their hearts aren't right. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's Spirit in them. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. That's the command to 
this group of people. There's going to be people among you inside your church. I don't care how healthy your church is. There's going to be people inside your church that are not Christians. And your job is to build one another up understanding that you're going to have to be graceful with those that are struggling, understanding that you're going to have to be graceful with those around you that maybe aren't right with God. And guess, guess what? Guess who gets to make the call on whether somebody is right with God or not? Let me give you a hint. It's not me or you. It's Jesus. He's the only one that can really see somebody's heart, right? We can see indicators and we can give warnings. We don't get to judge where somebody goes, right? That's Jesus's job. What, what our job is, is to show each other grace, to show each other mercy, to show each other love. It is unloving to enable sin, okay? So sometimes we need to have hard talks with people who are getting into trouble, but all of that is designed to build one another up. That's the whole point of it, is to build one another up. And all of this is informed by looking at the word of God and leaning into the word of God. It says in 2 Peter 2, you got to pay close attention to what the prophets wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came about from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. That's what I just alluded to a minute ago. What the Bible teaches about itself is that the Bible didn't come from human beings, it came from the Lord. When we look in the Word of God, we're opening up the mind of God. If you want to know how to have a great life, you want to live life the way God says to live it. It doesn't mean your life is going to be free from trouble or from from, uh, problems. It does mean you're going to be able to deal with it in a godly way, which is, uh, oddly enough, the best way. So if you want to have a really good life, know the Word, understanding that, guys, do you ever feel like we live in a dark world? Do you feel like we live in a dark world? Okay, the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went camping with some of the guys from the church, and we went hiking up in, uh, in some of these hills, and the, it was weird, like the temperature just went down in a couple of places while we were on this hike, and we were like, what's going on? Like, we started seeing our breath outside, and we're like, what is going on? Well, we realized we were getting close to a cave, and as we looked at these caves, these were deep caves. These weren't like little bitty uh, wimpy caves. These were deep caves. Anybody in here gone into a cave that is uh, uncharted before, <laughs> at least uncharted by you, without lights? Okay, so we go in this cave, we pull out our little dinky cell phone lights and turn them on. Those little lights are not very powerful in a cave. Like the, the cave darkness is a different kind of darkness. It is literally, if you go in a cave, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. There is no light in there at all. You turn those dinky little cell phone lights on, you're not going to want to go explore in a cave with a dinky little cell phone light. You can step off in a pit, you can get stuck. There's all kinds of terrible ways to die in a cave. So we got scared and we left after we went about 10 feet in. Um, Plus there may have been bears or who knows what else in there. We're like, I don't want to run up on that thing. Uh, So we got out of there. But you know, I was thinking, like, next year I might go back and I might go in those caves, but I'm only going to go in there if I got the right gear. And that most important gear that I could have in a cave is a really, really bright light. That's what I need. Okay, if you feel like this world is a dark place, you need a really, really bright light to get through it and to navigate it well. Some of you guys are not in the Word of God. You are trying to go through a cave with a little Bic lighter that keeps burning your finger because you didn't get the bright light. And you're hurting yourself and you're stumbling and you're tripping and things are not happening. It's because you're not using the light that God gives you. This right here says that the light of the Word of God will help you get through the dark places in life. And if you want to have a good church, guys, you need to understand, as I've mentioned over and over, there's going to be people struggling in the church. If you want to have any chance of helping them or not being that person, you need to be in the Word of God. It says in uh, Romans 10, uh, everyone who trusts in, yes, everyone who trusts in the Lord will be saved. That's a quote. But before people can call on the Lord, they must believe in Him. Before they can believe in the Lord, they must hear about Him. And for anyone to hear about the Lord, someone must tell them. So faith comes from hearing the good news. 
And people hear the good news when someone tells them about Christ. Now, often I had read this passage and thought, oh, yeah, it's talking about, uh, you know, giving somebody a tract or letting them read the Word of God. What this specifically is talking about in the language is the auditory spoken Word of God. There is power in the spokenness of God's Word. Do you know God's Word well enough to speak it to your neighbor? In in a situation where they need to hear it. There is power in the spoken word of God. If you want to be somebody that can give hope to others, if you want to be somebody that can influence others for good, you need to know God's word and you need to know it well enough where you can say it. And not just send somebody a link on the internet or, or an article or something. You need to speak the word of God. The Bible says to speak to one another's oracles of God within the church. Okay, secondly, to be an effective mercy provider, I must number two, recommit to prayer in the Spirit. Recommit to prayer in the Spirit. It says in Jude 1.20, furthermore, continue to pray in the Holy Spirit. Do not underestimate the power of prayer. If you want to know how to show mercy to people within the church, especially people that are struggling, do not underestimate the power of prayer. Now, Don't get confused when this says prayer in the Holy Spirit. This isn't just talking about like charismatic prayer, praying in tongues, or anything like that. This is talking about praying under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I mean practically by that is we just talked about, uh, a second ago, we looked at the passage where it says there are people with ungodly desires and ungodly hearts that are within the church. If your desire is ungodly, or if you're really not really interested in following Jesus, you're interested in chasing after something else, what are your prayers going to sound like? What are you going to pray for? Okay? Think about that. Now, contrast that with somebody whose heart really is right with God, who really is trying to follow Jesus as their king. What are their desires going to be compared to the desires of this person over here who really isn't that concerned? Right? What are their prayers going to sound like? Whenever you're walking with the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit is going to come out in your prayer. It's going to affect the kind of things you pray for. That's praying in the Spirit. It's not some charismatic feeling. It's praying under the influence of the Holy Spirit where your values have been affected, where your heart is right with God, where your prayers, you know... You're not praying for the cable guy to be on time to fix your internet. Like that's You're praying for other stuff, right? You're praying for stuff that matters. Now, prayer is also relationally how you connect with God. Guys, I'm married. If I never talked with my wife, would we have a good marriage? No, we would have a problem if we never communicated. It's the same with you. Christianity is about relationship, not rules. Like, you want to have a close, tight relationship with Jesus. You want to have a tight relationship with God the Father. You want to have a tight relationship with God the Spirit. You want to have a tight relationship with Him, and that relationship is going to affect your action. It's going to affect your values. It's going to affect decisions you make. But it's not about the rules. It's about the relationship. I follow and do certain things because I'm honoring God in my relationship. I love him, and I want to please him, so there's certain things I'm going to do and certain things I'm not going to do. It's not just a list of rules and regulations, though. It's relational. Prayer is how you build that relationship. And spiritual maturity is becoming like God in the way I think. Uh, That's also how, how wisdom is defined, by the way. So I just want you to ask, if Jesus took over my mind and my mouth, what kind of things would I pray for? That's praying in the Spirit. It's praying under the influence of the Spirit. Um, Thirdly, to be an effective mercy provider, I must, number three, remain within God's mercy myself. Remain within God's mercy myself. And Jude 121 says, stay always within the boundaries where God's love can reach and bless you. Wait patiently for the eternal life that our Lord Jesus Christ, in his mercy, is going to give you. Guys, this just means, personally, I've got to be faithful. I need to stay within the bounds that God has set for me. I've got to be faithful. The greatest thing we can do for people that are struggling around us is be close to God. Because you can only bring somebody else as close to God as you've gone yourself. 
You can't take them any further than you've gone yourself. If you really want to help your family, if you really want to help your friends, if you really want to help that struggling friend, it starts with you getting close to God yourself. you got to get there, and you got to remain faithful. As soon as I lapse in my relationship and I start going the other way, guys, I'm going to hurt the people around us, around me, uh, because I can't bring them any further than I am, right? Does that make sense? It's pretty simple, and if you love people, thinking of it in those, in those terms is going to help you in your relationship with God. Okay, lastly, and we'll close with this, to be an effective mercy provider, I must, number four, reflect God's mercy, being careful not to sin myself. I must reflect God's mercy, being careful not to sin myself. It says in verse 23, and as for others... Help them find the Lord by being kind to them. But be careful that you yourselves aren't pulled along into their sin. Hate every trace of their sin while being merciful to them as sinners. Again, guys, here's the message. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Christians often get confused about this. We really do. Um... Now, there was a church in Corinth, to kind of help us think about this, there was a church in Corinth uh, that was very immoral. Uh, Corinth was a very immoral city in the first century. It was kind of like San Francisco is today. San Francisco, I used to live there, um, so I can speak to this. San Francisco is a really jacked up place. I got so used to the stuff that I used to see in San Francisco that I didn't even see it anymore. And when somebody would visit and we would pass the group of 65-year-old men who were all naked on the park bench, I didn't even notice. Uh, but they would. Or, you know, when we were downtown, just there's crazy stuff you see in San Francisco. If you guys haven't visited there, you ought to visit there. Just don't take your kids. Um, it's not a good place for kids. Corinth was like that. In the first century, people would say you're acting like a Corinthian as a degrading thing, Right? Uh, Corinth was a place that was home to uh, the temple to Artemis, or excuse me, the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Uh, there were over a thousand temple prostitutes in Corinth. You could go to Corinth and you could do whatever you wanted to do sexually. Uh, male, female, gay, straight, it didn't matter. You could get whatever you wanted there. Um, well, Paul went there and, and started making disciples and a church formed in Corinth. And man, wouldn't you know it, a lot of people started bringing that immorality into the church there, and a lot of uh, false doctrines and things. There was a guy that uh, started sleeping with his stepmom in the church, and the church just sort of let it happen. They didn't say anything. In fact, they kind of took pride in their progressivism, because look at how graceful we're being. We even got a guy in our church who's sleeping with the stepmom, and we just let him come on. They're like, it's a good thing, right? And so Paul writes them some instruction, and what he says in uh, verse 5 is, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his rebellious flesh in hope that his spirit may be rescued and restored in the day of the Lord. Now, the larger context here is he tells him, you kick him out of the church. If there's a guy who's coming, sleeping with his stepmom, you guys don't talk about how awesome it is and how graceful you are. You kick him out of the church. Because what's going to happen to that guy if he keeps living that way? What's going to happen to him? He's not going to be right with God, right? What's going to happen if he influences others that this kind of behavior is okay? And you just put up with it. What's going to happen to them? They're going to fall out of a relationship with God. Guys, there's real consequences here. Paul says, you hand this man over to Satan. Verse 6, boasting of your tolerance of sin is inappropriate. Underline that. Boasting of your tolerance of sin is inappropriate. Don't you understand that even a small compromise with sin permeates the entire fellowship, just as a little leaven permeates a batch of dough. Guys, condoning sin is not mercy. Condoning sin is not mercy. Let me repeat that just in case you didn't hear it the first two times. Condoning sin is not mercy. You want to know what condoning sin is? It's hatred. 
It's hatred. We are so confused about this in our country and in our culture. Guys, there are Christian denominations that are large and influential based in the United States that are embracing sin. They are condoning sin. They are rewriting the scriptures or they're giving weak arguments based on poor scholarship to say that certain things are okay. I will give you some examples. Sex outside of marriage. The Bible calls that sexual immorality. Cohabitation. If you are not married to your boyfriend or girlfriend, you do not live with them like you are. That's a sin. How many churches teach that anymore? Or confront that when it shows up? You want to know how many couples we've had come to the crossings, and as we study the Bible, we've confronted this sin? Guess what happens 100% of the time? They don't stick around. 100% of the time. Why? Because they can go up the street to another church, and nobody's going to say a word to them. Okay? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Wouldn't it be nice if we were just united on this? Okay? What about homosexual practice? Okay? One of the things the Bible never condemns is homosexual orientation. I want to be real clear on that. All of the passages that talk about homosexuality in the Bible never once is orientation condemned. I don't believe a person chooses their sexual orientation. I believe there are social factors. There may even be biological factors. I don't know. I don't believe it's a choice. I have a lot of gay friends. Told you I used to live in San Francisco, right? Have a lot of gay friends. Even here, though, a lot of gay friends. We've had a lot of people in the church that, are, that are struggle with homosexuality. Orientation is not an issue in the Bible. You can be gay in orientation and be completely right with God. The scriptures teach that. What you cannot be is practicing homosexuality and be right with God. That is so abundantly clear from beginning to end in the Bible, but then you've got denominations like the United Church of Christ that wave rainbow flags, or the Methodist church, or the Presbyterian church that are split now, which I have friends in all of, not the UCC, but friends in Presbyterian and Methodist churches, the denominations are splitting. You have the, uh, the Episcopal church that years ago went off the rails. Large, influential denominations that are waving rainbow flags and saying this is fine. What is going to happen if you practice homosexuality and don't ever repent? You're going to be in trouble with the Lord. Is it loving of us to teach people this is fine? You can do this and be right. No, that's hateful. You want to talk about hate speech? Like the other side of the aisle says it's hateful, it's hate speech to say that that's a sin. I think it's hate speech to say there's nothing wrong with it. Because at the end of the day, God gets to define love and hate. Okay? What about... uh, Gender roles. There's great pressure right now to say that if you're a boy, you can call yourself a girl. Or if you're a girl, you can call yourself a boy. And we're just supposed to be fine with that. A couple of weeks ago, a kid in Wisconsin got suspended from school for using the wrong pronouns for another kid that wanted to be a they and them. Well, he just called him a him. He wasn't even trying to be a jerk or malicious. He just called a boy a boy, and he got suspended from school for hate speech. Guys, that is asinine. You've got uh, large sports organizations saying that boys, biological boys, can now compete against girls. That is asinine. But that's the culture that we live in now. You know, do you guys remember that movie Kindergarten Cop? came out back in the 80s. There was a joke in that movie where a five-year-old raises his hand and and stops Arnold Schwarzenegger in the middle and says, boys have a penis and girls have a vagina. And everybody was like, ah, ha, ha, right? Well, now I don't think they would be able to tell that joke. Like the joke was, this is such such an obvious truth that this five-year-old saying it is just cute because everybody knows that. Well, now in 2022, we don't even know that anymore. They would have to rewrite the joke and have the little five-year-old start talking about how, uh, I'm not even going to get into it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Guys, abortion. 
abortion is in the news right now. Biblically, abortion is wrong. It's murder. Equally, whenever a woman has an abortion, I have a lot of friends who had abortions. Many of you in here have had abortions. And you haven't told anybody. I want you to know you're in a safe place, okay? We understand that the church in traditional church circles has done nothing but heap condemnation on you if that's where you are and you have carried guilt around and you have carried shame around and you haven't wanted to tell anybody, you haven't told your family, you haven't told your friends because you have so much guilt in your heart over that sin. I want to be clear, that was a sin. But God gives you grace. And one of the reasons I am so opposed to abortion is not simply because it's killing a child. And I love kids, and God loves kids. It is not only killing a child, it is also killing the soul of the woman who does it. And she's carrying shame and guilt. And guys, as men, we don't even have an inkling of what that feels like to have to carry that through life. But there are women in our churches who are carrying that guilt and that shame who many feel like can't ever be forgiven because they feel so guilty about it. And so as a Christian, am I going to do things like condone legislation or political stances that says that's okay? You want to know how unloving that is? To say it's okay for you to have an abortion or it's okay for this or it's okay for that or I'm going to support this politician who's all in on this stupid woke progressivism crap? It's hurting people. It is unloving for you to say that abortion is okay. If you think it is, you are dead wrong on a couple of different levels. And you better not condone it if you call yourself a Christian. Because Jesus is not cool with that. Drug use. Drunkenness. Guys, we can go on. There are all kinds of things that the cultural pressure is going to push on the church. Guys, before our lives are over, teaching the Bible is going to be called hate speech. In fact, there are probably going to be people that watch this on the internet, this sermon today, and say that's hate speech. Are you guys ready for that? Are you ready if they picket us outside? Are you ready for that? You guys know, people say, if you could just be more like Jesus, the world would embrace you. They hung him on a cross and killed him. You need to read the story. They hung him on a cross and killed him. We need people that are going to be courageous in the midst of a, a really dark culture. What we think is all lit up in light. Guys, you're walking through a dark cave. If you embrace the values of our culture, if you try to bring the values of this fallen world into Jesus' church, you're going to meet opposition to that in a healthy church. And we have got to be strong and courageous, understanding that mercy does not condone sin. If you are condoning sin, you are not being merciful, you are being hateful. And what Paul had to get these people in Corinth to understand is that by condoning the immorality that this couple was living in, they weren't being kind and loving to that couple, they were being hateful to that couple. Because instead of helping that couple move toward Jesus and a light in life, they were helping that couple remain away from Jesus, and if they stay away from Jesus, what's going to happen to them? They're going to die. In our lifetimes, guys, the denominations Christian, in Christian circles that are going to blow up are probably going to be the ones that are more worldly than the ones that just teach the Bible. You need to be ready for that. Are you ready to take the heat? You need to be ready for that. It is immensely hard. Cultural pressure, guys, can be immensely hard to stand up under. You need to understand, maybe our grandparents had it one way in the United States. We are going to get a different treatment moving forward. And we had better stick to the word of God 
and we'd better stick together as the people of God because it's going to get harder and harder culturally to practice this stuff. You need to be ready for it and understand what we're getting ourselves into. In Galatians 6, my spiritual brothers and sisters, if one of our faithful fallen, or if one of our faithful has fallen into a trap and is ensnared by sin, don't stand idle and watch his demise. Gently restore him, being careful not to step into your own snare. When you're helping people in the church overcome sin, there's always going to be temptation. There could be temptation to give in to sin with them. There could be temptation to look down on them and to be arrogant toward them. There could be temptation uh, to be unduly angry and harsh toward them to protect your heart from getting hurt. Because anytime we feel rejected, that's typically we want to protect that, right? There's all kinds of temptation to sin. If you need to go and have a conversation with someone because they're involved in something that's hurting them, you need to be careful and guard your own heart. You need to speak calmly. You need to, to love them. And you need sometimes uh, to not speak at all. You need to develop some wisdom. You may need to ask for help. The call throughout the New Testament, though, guys, is when someone in the church is struggling with sin, we don't just sit around and, and let them die. We need to try to help them. Now, is everybody going to respond well that we try to help? Absolutely not. In fact, some are even going to fake it. They're going to pretend like they change. That's what this letter is all about. I want to encourage you, though, if you want to be a true disciple, if you want to be a person of mercy, guys, we have got to love God, and we've got to love one another, and we've got to love that lost world out there that needs Jesus. Amen? I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this morning. I do want to give you an opportunity to respond because anytime we open the Word of God, uh, guys, if we were convicted by something, don't just sit on that. If you were convicted this morning, don't just sit on it. Uh, what you'll do whenever you see something in the Scriptures that you're like, I need to change to be more like that, you need to do it immediately because if you don't, you're going to get used to hearing the Word of God and not doing anything with it. And that's a dangerous place to be. That's called hardening your heart. Don't harden your heart against the scriptures this morning. Uh, you've got a cardstock piece of paper in your bulletin. I want to encourage you to pull that out because it's got uh, places there for you to respond. Uh, we keep those private. Uh, we will, if you're asking for help for something this morning, connect you with somebody that can help you. One of our leaders here, we have a lot of leaders um, that are trained that that. We'll get together with you and help you with whatever you need. Um, I want to invite you to, guys, if this is your first time here or if you've been coming around for a while, I want to invite you to connect. Uh, every single week, there's opportunities to connect to the Crossings Church. One of the things uh, that I've learned over the years is if you want to have the best life, you need three things. You need a relationship with God. That is number one, the most important thing in life is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, you need his Holy Spirit in your heart. Uh, the way you get his Holy Spirit in your heart is by becoming a disciple of Christ. You're baptized into Christ. Uh, the Spirit lives in you. That's a little part of God that lives in you. You need him. He helps you live, right? It's a supernatural thing. Thirdly, you need God's people. And this is the one that gets missed a lot of times. God's uh, relationship with God, God's Spirit, and you need God's people. If you don't have God's people in your life, uh, you're going to be in trouble because a big part of your spiritual development comes through relationship with other people that are trying to follow God. We call that in sociological circles socialization. Uh, if you've ever taken a sociology class or something, you know whoever you hang out with the most, they affect your values. In the Bible it says, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. It says in uh, Corinthians, bad company corrupts good character. Who you hang out with the most is who you're going to become like. If you're hanging out with people that are really trying to follow Jesus with their whole heart, guess what? That's going to affect the kind of person that you become. If most of your friends and who you spend the most time with, though, aren't doing that, guess what? That's going to affect the kind of person you become. If you really want to have a blessed life, you want to be as close to God as you can. So I highly encourage you, if you're not connected here relationally, I want to encourage you to connect today. Uh, hang out after church. Talk to somebody. Go out to lunch with somebody. 
Uh, some of us are going and having a barbecue today. You can come over if you want to. Um, we've got all kinds of stuff throughout the, the week. Uh, normally, we have cross chats for teens. I think those are off for the summer until school starts again. Is that correct? Um, this Tuesday, a bunch of us are going down to the park to hang out and play basketball and pickleball and a bunch of other stuff. And Troy, if you want to come, you're welcome to. Um, guys, we have retreats. We have camps. Uh, we have all kinds of stuff going on here at the crossings. Uh, but guys, just on a real simple, simple basis, though, just go to lunch with somebody today. Go to lunch with one of our church members and make a friend. Uh, I just want to encourage you to connect. If you have any issues you need help with, uh, indicate it in that card. I'm going to pray in a moment. And we're going to sing a song, and that's going to give you an opportunity um, to fill that card out. But I just encourage you, in addition to filling the card out, try to connect with somebody today. And we've got a lot of ways for you to do that, okay? Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for bringing us together today. I pray that, uh, God, if there was anything that was spoken that was unwise or not of you, uh, that you'll just strike that from our hearts. But, Lord, if, uh, if what was shared here today honors you and is part of your truth and spoken in your spirit, I pray that conviction will carry over to action, where we won't just be a people that it's in one ear and out the other. We won't just be a people where we harden our heart to your truth and don't do anything with it, but that, God, we will be a people who takes your word and your truth and acts upon it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.